We work really hard as a staff each week not to focus on Star Wars and worship, um, but to do some really specific things. Um, And to do them every time and to do them in this order, to gather and proclaim the glory of God, to wrestle with the gravity of our sin, to be reminded of what we call the grandeur of God's grace. And then at the end of every service, we are sent out, we are equipped and we are ready to proclaim the good news to a world that desperately needs to hear that God loves and forgives and that God is calling his prodigals to come home. C.S. Lewis calls this the weight of glory, the reality that through the Holy Spirit, we carry God's glory with us into the world. It is a beautiful burden to bear, but it is a burden. It's weighty because we are called to not only tell the world that they are loved and forgiven, but to call them to the same repentance, to the same lives of obedience that we have accepted. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but that's not super popular in the world today. So that's the pattern that we follow when we plan our worship services, but it's also a really good pattern for you in prayer. That every time that we pray, that we would proclaim the goodness and glory of God, that we would wrestle with the reality of our sin, that we would remember and celebrate God's grace and forgiveness, and then ask God to equip us and give us the opportunity, give us the courage to go out in the world and do something about it. So three weeks ago, Roland uh, preached a sermon on Psalm 51, uh, David's great psalm, his prayer of confession after committing adultery and then having his friend, her husband, killed in battle. By the way, David did not come to that confession on his own. David was called to confession by his friend Nathan, the prophet. Nathan had to bear that weight of glory. He had to reveal to a king that the king's sins were an offense to God. Yikes. (laughs) Prophets have been killed for much less. By the way, Roland's sermon a couple weeks ago, it was really good. If you missed it, please go back and listen to it. It was on July 23rd. You can find it on the website and the podcast. But go back and listen to it because this week we are talking about confession again. But this time, not individual confession like Psalm 51, this time we're gonna look at corporate confession, the prayers of confession that we offer together as a people. I mean, basically all I'm doing is ripping off Roland's sermon from three weeks ago and applying it to the church as a community. All right, fair enough. All right, so we'll still be in the Psalms. Uh, Today we're gonna look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is another Psalm of David. It's called a maskil. A maskil, the word just means it's a word of instruction, it's a word of wisdom but it's passed down from one person to the community. And that's pretty important because what it tells us when we read Psalm 32 is yes, David is praying to God, but he's also writing to Israel. He's writing to us. He's writing instructions for us and we'll see that when we get to Psalm 32. But before we get there, really quickly as you're turning in your Bibles, I do have an article uh, that I read this week that I'd like to share with you. It was written by a guy named Jonathan Cruz. It's called Why Corporate Worship Should Include Corporate Confession. Uh, And he starts it like this. This is his intro. He says, many worship services are structured around what fills the most seats and makes the most people happy. And let's face it, publicly voicing sins can be awkward. 
Prayers of praise fire people up, but prayers of lament and confession are more likely to bum them out. So why include something in our weekly worship that's going to inevitably dredge up painful memories of days past or uncomfortable truths about ourselves? It's a good question. So he goes on to give five good reasons why we should bum ourselves out in worship each week. (laughs) So he starts by saying that, that we should confess as a response to God's glory, God's holiness. He says what necessitates confession is the fact that God is holy and we are not. And then he says this, he says if during the worship service we feel no need to laud God as holy and lament our condition as rebellious, then we would do well to ask if we really met with God at all. That's one, he goes on to say that there's, there's historical precedent for confessing as a community in worship. Not only in scripture, but throughout the history of Israel's worship, the history of the church's worship, in our reformed tradition. John Calvin always put a confession in the order of worship right after the call to worship, and that's effectively what we do here every week in the 11 o'clock service. Other people, they put the confession just before they celebrate communion. Others don't have the confession as its own element, but they have it as the part of a pastoral prayer that is prayed before receiving the gospel. That's how we do it in this church at the 930 service. Next, he talks about the reality of what confession does for us, not just spiritually, but what it does for us physically. He calls this the good news of confession, and he turns also to Psalm 32. He says, David saw confession as a way of life. To not confess is the same as a slow, agonizing death. Silence over sin leads to suffering, but when we open our hearts and our mouths and confess our guilt, then we receive healing. And then his fourth and his fifth point, they work together. He says that confession reminds us that we are sinners in need of grace. And that's central to our gospel identity, but it's also central to the way we understand all humanity. Every human, a sinner in need of grace. But he also says this, and I love the way he says it. He says, communal confession pierces into our gloomy, self-centered, spiritual introspection and reminds us that we aren't in this alone. There is an entire congregation around us struggling through what it means to die to sin. There is great consolation in recognizing our fallen condition together as a community. And the truth is not only are we not in this alone, but corporate confession reminds us that our sins don't impact us alone that there are communal consequences to sin. And this truth is rooted in Genesis 3. The disobedience of the man and the woman is the root of disobedience in every man, woman, and child that follows. And when we confess sin together, we're reminded, I may not be guilty of the same sins as my neighbor, but I am guilty of sin along with my neighbor. And my sin impacts not only my love for God, but it impacts my ability to love my neighbor as myself. And there are also sins that are committed by the community, by groups of people, by nations, by churches. And just like we do individually, when we confess that we have gone astray as a people, we find hope and healing. When we recognize it, we confess it. Y'all, that is at the heart of our Reformed tradition. It's central to who we are as Presbyterians. 
we will go astray. And when we do, we say it, we repent, and we return to the Lord. So let's hear now from David in Psalm 32. And let's see how this psalm might guide our conversations with God as a community moving forward. He says this in Psalm 32, starting in verse one, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Someone on staff emailed me just this morning, that'll preach. (laughs) We know that. Verse five, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You'll protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Another member of our staff reminded me uh, in an email after reading this that they remember the garden when the man and the woman disobeyed the Lord when they recognized their nakedness and their shame. What was the first thing they did? They hid. And they hid first from each other. They hid their bodies by covering themselves with leaves, but then they hid their whole selves from the Lord. This verse is so important because David is acknowledging that even in our sin and our shame, it's the Lord himself who is our hiding place. I think conceptually we get that on an individual level. I wonder what that means for us as a community. So David goes on for the rest of the psalm. Now, the rest of Psalm 32, he's actually not talking directly to God. Now he's talking to you. He's talking to Israel. And he's speaking to the people as their king. And he says this in verse eight. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. And let's read this verse together. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. And y'all, this is the good news about confession. The truth that confession and forgiveness always go together. And that in confession and forgiveness, there is rejoicing. That's what David wants us to understand. That there is a relief that follows confession. That God does not withhold his forgiveness from us. Broken, disobedient humans just often refuse to fully accept it. And David is telling us that to live without forgiveness, the ache in our bones that comes from not being forgiven, from not confessing, that is the terrible curse. To not receive forgiveness is a terrible curse. I'm gonna tell you a story, and I'm gonna tell you right off the bat, there's a part of the story I'm gonna sound like I'm the hero of the story. So I'm not. I'll make that point perfectly clear in just a minute, okay? And I shared this with a Bible study uh, the other day. Um, The day after I got back from Europe, 
I woke up way earlier than I hoped. <laughs> Um, so I went out and grabbed breakfast for the family, and as I was coming back, I was pulling out onto Westlake Houston, um, and I had a green light, but it was an unprotected left, and I wasn't really paying as much attention as I should have been. I mean, in my defense, I hadn't driven in like a month, and like everybody was driving on the wrong side of the road again, <laughs> so. But anyway, I began to turn left, and then this car who had the right of way came through the intersection. So I stopped in time and he swerved a little just to make sure we didn't crash. But that's the moment when time slowed down. Like, I mean, a second or two just felt like forever. And this time that was slowed down, it began with him. I mean, I thought he was waving to me. <laughs> but he was making another gesture to let me know that he was very frustrated. And listen, that seemed a little dramatic. Like, we weren't really that close to hitting each other, but, but I knew I was wrong. I wasn't trying to pretend otherwise. So I immediately, again, we're talking seconds. I immediately started with all the gestures. <sighs> Mouthing to him as articulately as I could, I'm sorry, my bad. Okay, so look, I did my part, right? Okay, I confessed. All right, but that's not my point. Here's why this story stuck with me, why it seemed like time slowed down. After clearly, at least I thought, after clearly acknowledging this is on me, my fault, my bad, that driver's hand gesture got louder. <laughs> um, and not only that, like he started shouting at me and I could hear him through the car and he wasn't calling me nice things. <laughs> okay, again, fair enough, it was my fault. But listen, this is silly. I'm about to admit how crazy I am to y'all. Okay, there's a part of me that really wanted him to just say in those microseconds, it's okay. I accept your apology, <laughs> right? Like, like I wanted all that to happen as we were passing on the busy road. Like you see how crazy I am, right? Like in those two seconds, like that man has probably not thought about this once since. And here I am, seriously, like still wondering, reflecting on, like, will that guy ever forgive me for not actually hitting him? Listen, I'm absolutely not the hero of the story because I have been slow to offer forgiveness myself. And honestly, in like the most shameful ways, I've done it to my own kids. Like, they've messed up, they've owned it, they clearly felt terrible about it. And more than once, I've been immature and prideful. I stayed silent. I don't know, maybe I just thought they needed to learn a lesson or something. I don't know, all that they wanted, all that they needed in that moment was, I forgive you. I love you. But even if it was just for seconds, I held out. And that's not okay. Like that's not okay because it's torturous to sit in our sin and our guilt and our shame and not receive forgiveness. We can't handle it. We weren't wired to handle that. And I'm telling you, this is why a lost world is running and hiding and lashing out against us, against each other, against God, because they haven't received the forgiveness and grace that can take their brokenness, that can take their guilt and their shame and can make them new again. 
And it's not because God hasn't offered it to them. That mercy and grace is being offered. It's just that in their brokenness, in their guilt, in their shame, they have just so far refused to accept it. Y'all, every one of us has been there. You, do, you realize before we were saved, we weren't. <laughs> Listen, calling people to confession, to repentance, just like the prophet Nathan did with King David, as unpopular as it might be, as difficult as it is to speak hard truths, I am telling you, aside from the news of who Jesus is and what he's done, teaching someone how to confess, how to repent, how to find forgiveness, it's one of the greatest gifts that we can offer. Because confession, agreeing with God that he is holy and we are not, that is the only way, it's the only path to find real forgiveness, which is the only way that we can be made whole again, which is the only way that we can be restored in relationship with each other and with God, and it's the only way we will ever find peace. That's why David starts his psalm with blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. Blessed is the sinner when they have received forgiveness. Like think about this on the micro scale, just in your interpersonal relationships. Think about a time when you have received forgiveness from someone else. Like maybe radical forgiveness, an act of grace and mercy that you didn't deserve. How's that feel? Man, pretty good. It's a gift. It's a blessing. Like what a gift, what good news we have to offer a lost and broken world that in their guilt, in their shame, they can find forgiveness and wholeness and healing. They can find peace. And listen, I have to tell you, so we're talking about confession. That's our job, is to share that good news and make disciples. That's the, that's the only job the church has been given. When we refuse to do that, when we refuse to share the gospel, um, when we refuse to not make disciples, y'all, that's disobedience. We are disobeying the very gospel that we say we proclaim. It's disobedience and we have to confess. Confession is the only way to find forgiveness and healing and hope and peace. And I'm telling you that's not only true for the individual, but this is true for the community. It's true for communities. Because there are sins throughout history, sins that we could sit here and list all day long, sins committed by people groups, by nations, by churches. I was just in Germany, the sins of the 1930s are still heavy on that country. And just as restoration comes to the individual through confession, confessing sins in community is what leads to forgiveness and wholeness and healing, leads to real peace. And I have to tell you, I'm convinced the church has some confessing to do. We have to confess that we have not been sharing the gospel as we have been commissioned. We have not been making disciples if we had been commissioned. But more than that, I, if, you'll, if you'll bear with me, um, I wanna share something personal. This is on my heart, I'll share with you why in a minute, and I'm fully aware this is my personal perspective, so I just want you to, to take it as it is. Uh, but I do want you to know I've measured this against scripture, I measured it against the gospel, I've prayed over this, I shared this with our staff. Um, I'm not offering this haphazardly. 
Um, so I just want to ask for just for a minute a little patience and grace so we can have a nuanced conversation. Can we do that? <laughs> Nervous, sure. <laughs> okay, we're going to do it. Um, okay, many of you know uh, where some churches, some churches have abandoned the authority of Scripture and the Lordship of Jesus. They have turned to social causes as their gospel and have come to believe that it's social action that will save us. Now listen, social causes are important. Like we are called to love God and our neighbors and sometimes the ways that we love God is by loving our neighbor. So we are not to just ignore the struggle and the suffering of others. But we cannot replace the gospel either because social action won't save us. Only Jesus will. And this church, 10 years ago, left a denomination that refused to confess that sin. But I believe the church at large, especially in Western culture, the church has become more focused on proclaiming political ideologies than it is focused on proclaiming the gospel. That many churches on both the right and the left have become defined by their political identity rather than their identity in Christ there's a lot of reasons this matters, but the one that really is weighing on me, I think it's most tragically obvious in our tendency to condemn and even attack those that we disagree with politically when what scripture calls us to do is to pray for them. And y'all, that's not my opinion. That's straight out of scripture. First Timothy 2 says this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So listen, this became personal for me this summer. Um, in London, the, the cohort that I'm studying with, we had this incredible opportunity uh, to meet with the people in the UK who regulate interest rates. Like, we spent a day with the leaders of the debt management office, which is the equivalent of our Federal Reserve. And I'm not going to share the details with you publicly, but I do want to tell you that the weight of their work, the burden that they bear, it sits heavy on them. Like, the reality is the work that they do has to be done or the whole system's going to fall apart. But it's also true that there is no perfect system. That means that their decisions and their policies, right now in particular, decisions and policies that are allowing inflation to rise to over 8% in the UK, that have allowed interest rates on homes to triple in the past five years, and most mortgages in the UK are adjustable rate, not fixed rate. These decisions and policies as much as that's shocking to you, these decisions and policies unequally impact the poor and the working classes. And I'm telling you, the people making these decisions, I saw it with my own eyes, they are deeply and emotionally affected by that reality. In an imperfect system, what are you gonna do? It was a really profound moment for me because like, to be honest, to confess, as I listened to them for two hours describe what it is they do, man, I sat in judgment of them. 
I sat in deep judgment of them. But then when I saw the person, and as they began to share with us, which they didn't have to do, but they did, when they began to share with us how the work they do leads to personal guilt and shame, I had the chance to confess my sin over judging them, and I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to pray with them. Y'all listen, we can stand in opposition to somebody politically and socially, and we can still pray for them as they lead us. We can pray for wisdom, we can pray for discernment, we can pray for just and ethical decision making. We can pray for all those who are negatively impacted by their decisions. This whole situation reminded me, this whole situation taught me that maybe they're not all evil after all. Maybe they're just broken people like me, working in a broken system, trying to do their jobs the best they can. Maybe, I don't know, (laughs) maybe they're not. But here's the deal, either way, I'm not called to be their judge. I'm called to pray for them. That scripture said to intercede for them. That scripture said that I'm called to give thanks for them. So listen, it's easy to pray for the people we support. I think we can do better than that. I think that we can pray for the people that we oppose. If you're politically liberal, when is the last time you prayed for former President Trump or Governor Abbott? If you're politically conservative, when is the last time you prayed for President Biden or Vice President Harris? When's the last time I've prayed for somebody that I disagree with, that I would oppose? When's the last time I prayed for them? Y'all, I'm not saying that we should agree with them and that we need to endorse their policies. We can vote against them. But we can vote against them and still pray for them. That's what the church is called to do. Now look, in this crazy political environment, this climate that we've been in for years now, like I need you to know I need you to know that I give thanks to God all the time because this church in particular has been able to navigate this chaos really well. Like this is a loving church that recognizes the power of the gospel and our responsibility to make disciples of Jesus. And we're not doing it perfectly yet, but we're working on it. And I know, I know that many of you do pray for our leaders. So why am I fussing at you about this? I remember one of the first times I was ever in a Presbyterian church. I went with, she was my girlfriend at the time, but my, my wife and her family. And I did not understand all the liturgy that we were supposed to say all these things out loud together. I'd never done that before. And we got to the prayer confession and I didn't say it. And I went for weeks and I never said it. And finally, Jennifer, she asked me, she said, why won't she say that prayer of confession? I said, because I don't know if I did any of that. <laughs> I don't know if I did that stuff. I'm going to read it first. (laughs) Listen, remember what we said earlier. When we confess sin together in community, we are reminded, I may not be guilty of the same sins as my neighbor, but I am guilty of sin along with my neighbor. And sin impacts not only our love for God, but it impacts our ability to love our neighbors and ourselves. And y'all, anytime, any church 
is known more for its politics than its gospel. It hurts the witness of all churches who are charged with proclaiming the saving name of Jesus. So the church must be the place in the world that seeks truth in all things. We should be active, we should vote, and we should do so according to our beliefs. But we can pray for those who lead us. Paul tells us this is good and pleasing to God. It reminds us that Jesus fought not against evil sinners, he fought for them. He died to find and save all the prodigals, all his lost sheep, and he offers forgiveness and mercy even to those who nailed him to the cross. That's why it's important when we gather together that we confess together. We confess because we worship a holy God and we're reminded that we are not. We confess because both Israel and the church throughout history have made it a part of their worship. We confess because confession is just good for our bones. It leads to healing and wholeness and peace. And we confess because it reminds us that we, like everybody else, are sinners in need of grace, and it reminds us that we're not in this alone. So the church is called to confess, to tell the truth, to agree with God about the brokenness both in and around us, to call upon the grace and mercy of God. We are called to be a church that remembers and proclaims the good news that he has paid the price for our guilt, that he has provided the covering for our shame, and in defeating death, he has overcome the only thing that can truly and permanently destroy us. Amen? Amen. That's the gospel. That's the truth that we gather to proclaim every single week. Sinners coming together, recognizing the gravity of our sin, but praising God because of the grandeur of his grace, celebrating the truth that the weight of his glory is more than our sins can bear. That his grace and glory washes us clean, makes us new, and it empowers a transforming work in us that makes us more and more like Jesus until we meet him face to face in glory. Do we at least agree with that last part? Amen? We should go out into the world and live like it's true. Let's pray. Father, confessing our sins is hard enough um, individually um, just to admit that we're wrong. Uh, but it, it's hard for a community to do that as well, especially when, when we're confessing things that maybe, maybe, that's not my, maybe that's not my burden. But when we do it together, we have solidarity with one another. We remember that we are all sinners, that only you are holy, but that because you hear our confession and that you offer forgiveness in return, that you are making us holy, that you are sanctifying us and making us new. And then in the meantime, you're using us to take this good news to the people who need to hear it. So we confess our disobedience when we have stopped ourselves from proclaiming the gospel. We confess our disobedience when we have chosen to not make disciples of others. And we ask for your forgiveness, for your healing, for you to turn our direction toward you, toward obedience, toward the work you've called us to do. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said.